0: From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, OSU students Alyssa Morrell and Anna Schwetz talk to L.E. Modisette, Jr. and Alex Bledsoe, guests at the Context 25 convention happening in Columbus September 28th through the 30th. And OSU student Samantha Demerol reviews Liz Free or Die.
1: I'm Alyssa Morrell. Ellie Modestet Jr. is the author of nearly 60 novels and over 20 short stories, including the renowned Saga of Recluse series. His most recently published novel is Princeps, which is a part of the Imager Portfolio series, and the next book in the series, titled Imager's Battalion, will be released in January. He will also be the guest of honor at Context 25, the speculative fiction literature convention held here in Columbus from September 28th through the 30th. Mr. Modestet, it's been said that you started out your writing career wanting to be a poet. How did you end up writing science fiction and fantasy?
2: Um, because I was only moderately successful as a poet. I got published in small literary magazines. I entered the Yale Younger Poet Contest until I was no longer young enough to be a younger poet without much success. And a friend said, You've read read science fiction since you were a child. Why don't you try writing it? I did. And I actually sent off the very first story I wrote to to, uh, Analog, at the time that Ben Bova was editor, and he sent me back a very nice rejection letter saying, it's not a bad story, but you really messed up page 13. If you can fix it, send it back and I'll see. I did. He bought it. And I thought, hey, I'm a writer. Uh, It didn't work that way. Uh, I actually kept track and I I tried and submitted something like 26 stories before I sold the second one several years later. And that went on for a number of years. I'd sell a few, get better in terms of, shall we say, the acceptance to rejection ratio, until after about six or seven years, uh, Ben sent me another rejection letter saying, literally, don't send me any more stories. Mm -hmm. I won't buy them. And after I got over the shock of those two lines, I read the rest of the letter, which basically said, you're a novelist trying to cram novels into short stories. Go write a novel. And I hadn't wanted to because my acceptance-rejection ratio was so bad that I thought, do I want to write four or five novels of 90,000 words to get one of them published? But he didn't give me any choice, so I went and wrote a novel. And it's sold, and I've sold every novel novel I've ever written. And that's how it all started.
1: That's wonderful. Then how much time do you spend working on each novel, since you have so many of them? Um,
2: I have averaged writing about two and a half novels a year for the last 20 years.
1: Wow. Once you come up with the idea, does it tend to sort of consume your life? Is it pretty much everything that you do from then on until it's finished?
2: I wouldn't say it consumes my life, but I do spend an awful lot of time writing. When people ask my wife how much time I spend writing, she says, basically, most of the time. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite that bad, but with time out for chores and dogs and a few things like that, I basically write from 9 or 9.30 in the morning until probably 7 to 9.30 at night most days.
1: Very dedicated, then. Have any of your characters been based on people from your everyday life or from things that you've read before, your favorite poets?
2: Generally not. There is one exception to that. I I tend to take more characteristics of people,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and situations. But I have to admit that Anna Marshall, who is the principal character in the Spell Song cycle, or the first three books of the Spell Song cycle, is based largely on my wife Carol Ann.
1: I had wondered at that since she's an opera instructor.
2: She's basically. Uh, an opera singer who teaches voice and opera,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that is exactly what Anna is. And her background got me to thinking about a particular, call it issue, that right now we probably train singers in our world as well as they could possibly be trained. But if singing were magic, as it is in the world of the spell song cycle, would there be that many sorceresses? And I realized there probably wouldn't be, because song magic is so powerful under those circumstances. And the voice has to be trained basically between puberty and maybe 30. And that's a time at which most young people are frankly the most selfish. And it's one thing to teach a voice for opera. It's another thing to teach a voice for power. Just how many singers would be willing to trust a student with enough power to kill
1: them. That's very true. For Context 25, where you'll be here in Columbus, do you have any tips or pointers for listeners who've never been to a convention before?
2: (laughs) I guess my simple thing would be just keep an open mind because conventions, even if you've been to a lot of conventions, I think no convention is exactly what anybody thinks it's going to be for various reasons. It's a place where you can meet other people who are interested in the field, where you can talk generally to writers. I mean, Columbus has a number of homegrown writers who have done quite, quite well. Sean and Maguire, for example. You never know who's going to be there, or sometimes who's not going to be there. But it's a good place to get a flavor of what's going on and what's likely to, to happen in the field ahead, because it's one of the few places where you can find writers who will tell you about what they're going to do as opposed to what they have done.
1: At Ohio State here, um, I'm taking a science fiction class, and we've been talking about different authors' definitions of science fiction and fantasy and the difference between the two. So for you, it's the general assumptions underlying the universes?
2: Exactly. Uh, I mean, basically, people are going to do economics. And one of, one of my pet peeves about, and this has changed a lot, thank goodness, over the last 20 years, but when I first started writing, one of the things that got me into writing fantasy was the unreality of fantasy in terms of human nature. You had too many untried mages on the front line. Well, no grizzled old army marshal is ever going to put something untried into the front lines. He'd rather have farmers with pitchforks than anything like that. But it was a staple, and there was also what uh, another author called the quest funded by the medieval equivalent of the gold card where people go off on quests with no visible means of support. It doesn't work in human nature. There's been exactly one of them in human history. This was known as the Children's Crusade. And every one of those children either ended up dead or enslaved because it's not true to human nature. Luckily, as I said, this has evolved in fantasy over the last 20 years, so we see far, far less of the totally unrealistic human and economic behavior and fantasy. Uh, There's still some in certain areas, but thank goodness it's not as prevalent as it once was.
1: (laughs) Then are there uh, any authors that you're currently reading or whose novels that you love?
2: Oh, (laughs) there are a lot of authors. I I don't have favorite authors, but I have favorite books. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of contemporary authors, Mary Robinette Kowal, Glamour and Glass is one that I enjoyed recently, uh, a great deal. Uh, I still like some of the older authors, although not necessarily the ones that other people find uh, intriguing. For example, a lot of people like Roger Zelazny. And there's some of the Zelazny stuff that I like, certainly uh, Lord of Light is one of them, or Call Me Conrad. But the one of his I happen to like is, a, is one that's almost obscure. It's called Creatures of Light and Darkness. And Zelazny almost didn't publish it. As a matter of fact, his publisher had to pry it out of him because he, because he thought it was so experimental that it would not sell. It sold all right, but not, not great. But I thought that was a much more intriguing work than some of the more popular stuff. And, I mean, there are a number of writers writing right now that are doing very intriguing things. I try and read at least four or five of authors that I haven't read. Every year, maybe as many as 10 or 15, but I won't guarantee I always get up to that number. Consequently, uh, a lot of them I had not read in depth because every time I read a book, that's taking time away from writing one. So I tend to get most of my reading done on the Kindle on airplanes.
1: That makes a lot of sense, since it does take away from your writing, but it's good to know that you're able to get in your own reading as well. Is there anything you can tell us about any of the new novels that you said you're just starting to work on?
2: I can tell you a little bit more about The One-Eyed Man, because it is an interesting story. That's the standalone science fiction novel that'll be out about a year from now. It started (laughs) with an odd situation. About two years ago, David Hartwell, who's my editor at Tor, sent me a picture By John Jude Palencar, who's a noted science fiction and fantasy illustrator. And the picture is a science or fantasy takeoff on a Wyeth painting called Christina's World. And it shows the picture of a woman on a vast plane looking into into the horizon, the Wyeth painting does. In Palencar's version, it's pretty much in a lot of ways close to a copy of The Woman and the Grass on which she's standing. But unlike the clouds, which are more typical in the Wyathe landscape, Palancar did a sky of clouds like almost squid-like or octopus, almost sky monsters. And David Hartwell decided that he was going, was going to ask a number of authors to write a short story based on the painting, which is something used to be done in pulp fiction magazines years and years ago. And it was called The Palancar Project. Well, I started writing what I thought was going to be a short story. And when I got to about 11,000 12,000 words, I realized I was nowhere close to being done with this. And it wasn't going to be a short story. It wasn't even going to be a novelette. So I showed it because I had other novel commitments and I just didn't have the time to do it at that particular point and wrote about a 2,500 word short story, which was actually published on Tor.com with the other four stories around the painting. And then, between, after I finished Antigon Fire, I really wanted to take a break, just to take a little time off on the imager portfolio. So I decided I'd go back and see if I could complete what had started as a short story. And it was indeed a novel, and not a short novel, not a long novel. It comes in at about 115,000 words. But I finished it and uh, sent it off to David, and they, they were absolutely thrilled with it. But it all started out, theoretically, as a short story for Tor.com online. (laughs) And I never would have written it if it hadn't been for the request to write a short story.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Is the novel going to be connected to the short story on Tor.com then?
2: No. It's an entirely different take on the same picture. So in essence, you are to have five short stories on that picture plus a novel, and every one of them is radically different, including the two of mine. Mine are in totally different universes, so to speak. The short story is pretty much in our world, except it is definitely a science fiction short story, and the novel is far future hard science fiction.
1: If our listeners were to pick up one of your novels for the first time, which one would you recommend they begin with? <laughs>
2: Actually, if we were talking about this, I would ask you, what else do you like to read? Because I've literally written everything from near-future thriller mysteries to relatively far-out science fantasy or fantasy. And I'd try and pick a book that came closest to whatever your tastes were. If we're talking traditional fantasy, I'd probably say The Magic of Recluse. If we're talking hard science fiction, I'd probably pick something like The Eternity Artifact. If you're talking more thrillers, I'd probably pick Flash, which is a near-future, definitely almost cyber-thriller.
1: It is very impressive that you have such a wide uh, breadth to your works and that so many people can be fans of you, even if their favorite genres don't really overlap. Thank you, Mr. Modasset. The upcoming book again is Imagers Battalion, and the literature convention, Context 25, runs from September 28th through the 30th. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. For Writer's Talk, I'm Alyssa Morrell.
0: You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. That was OSU student Alyssa Morell talking to L.E. Modoset, who will be at the Context 25 convention in Columbus. Now, OSU student Anna Schwetz talks to another guest at that convention, Alex Bledsoe.
3: I'm Anna Schwetz and I'm introducing Alex Bledsoe, who will be in town for the Context convention next week.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: What about your upbringing has influenced you to write?
4: That's a good question because there's nothing in my upbringing that would have influenced me to write. I grew up in a very small town in Tennessee where a population of about 350 and 250 of those are related to me. And there was no public library. There was no newspaper. There was a school, but it was, as you can imagine, very, very small, very, very under under, you know, staff. Well, not understaffed. The teachers were good, but they had very little to work with. And I don't know why I was driven to become a writer, but I knew from a very early age that that was something I was going to do. And it perplexed a lot of the people around me, particularly my family, who weren't really prepared to have somebody who wanted to be anything artistic in the middle of
3: them. So did you always want to be a writer?
4: Yeah, I mean as far back as I can remember that's that's what I wanted to do. The earliest memory I have of writing anything was of taking a Batman comic book and typing it out as a prose story on my dad's old manual typewriter that he used for um he was he was a member of the the church deacons for our church and he typed up their minutes on this typewriter and I used up all the ink. So I uh Actually, the first thing I wrote was An Offense Against God, so I've come come a long way since then. Or not, depending on who you talk to.
3: So the Eddie LaCrosse series, they're this very interesting mixture of fantasy and noir, and I've actually never seen that combination before. What do you find appealing about each of the genres, and how did you get the idea to combine them like this?
4: I love noir because generally they're told in first person, and generally your reaction as a right as a reader is to the personality of the narrator. If you like this personality, you and usually it's a guy. So if you say I like this guy, you're willing to follow him and or her through these adventures. If you were not enamored of this person's personality, probably you wouldn't you wouldn't like it. And the the noir the detective genre also allows you to have a character whose job it is to ask questions and if you do it right it's the questions that the reader wants to be answered and that again you know it directly connects you to the protagonist also and also a lot of the noir writers are just great writers they have great turns of phrase they have great um, humor they present characters who are extremely ambiguous and give you a side of life that you probably, you know, you wouldn't want to encounter in real life. Now, as for the fantasy, you know, I just I just have always liked that. I've always liked science fiction and fantasy. I've always read it. I've always watched the movies. I mean, I was 14 when Star Wars came out. So I was the perfect age to just totally embrace that and, and and be in that first wave of people who suddenly found that the things that had gotten them beaten up as younger kids were now cool and everybody liked and that was that was a nice a nice period to be in. Um, and as far as putting them together well I had, the first Eddie lacrosse book the Sword Edge Blonde is an idea that I had literally nursed since high school and I had tried to write it many different times in many different ways, and it just never came to life the way I wanted it to. Um, but eventually I thought, why not write this as a detective novel, but with the same fantasy setting? And when I did that, when I changed the, the, the main character, he, <laughs> he was originally known as Devereux LaCrosse, because I thought fantasy heroes had to have names like that. When I changed his name to Eddie LaCrosse, made him a detective figure gave him that point of view and still dropped him into a fantasy universe it just kinda came alive for me as the as the writer and you know obviously some, a lot of readers have liked it too so it was it was a process of elimination to arrive at that, and it took a really long time. But once I did, it just clicked.
3: What was the most fun to write for you?
4: The Eddie Lacrosse books are a lot are are a lot of fun right now. The the one that just came out, The Wake of the Bloody Angel, was a blast. It was because it's about pirates, and anytime you're writing about pirates, it's it's fun. They're they're fun characters to write about. They're fun characters to research. Um, You know, ships are exciting by nature. Sea battles are fun, and at this point, you know, four novels in, I'm writing the fifth novel right now. Eddie lacrosse's voice is very, very easy for me to drop into. I mean, I can I can start writing in his voice, you know, without even really thinking about it anymore. Um, I enjoyed writing my two my two vampire horror novels because they were set in Memphis in the '70s, and that's a fun time to write about. I mean, you particularly since the 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 crux of that story is you have an old world Dracula type vampire waking up in Memphis in the 70s confronting, you know, the clothes, the music, the the gender issues, the race issues and you know, that's a that's a fun thing to write about. Even even in the context of a horror novel which, you know, is supposed to be scary, you can still work in you know some humor that arises out of the reality of the situation. Um, the Tufa novels that I've written, the the Hum and the Shiver, and then the one that's coming out next year called Wisp of a Thing, are I can't really say they're harder to write, but they take longer because they're set they're set in the real world. They're about a particular place, and they're more. They're more magical realism than fantasy because the, the fantasy elements are often hidden and often spoken around. And the trick with that is always finding finding the line. You know, You don't want to give everything away and be too blatant, but at the same time, you don't want to be so obscure that the reader doesn't know what the hell is going on. Those take longer. The, and, and I mean, they're not the books themselves aren't any longer than my other books, but they take longer to write and they take longer to polish.
3: So you teach writing workshops?
4: Yeah, I teach a teen writing workshop at the local library here a couple of times a year.
3: Well, what's that like? What do you like? What do you dislike?
4: Oh, actually, it's, I don't dislike anything about it. It's great. I mean, you know, it's entirely voluntary. And so you only get kids there that really want to do this. And honestly, you know, some of them are not great, some of them are, but all of them, if you if you show them, you know, this is how you should think about this, this is how you should go forward from this point, they can take the criticism and really get better. From you know, you so if you look at all of them from the point they start to the point they finish, they all show improvement and that's really all you can ask. And you know, hopefully, it also means they they think about their stories a little differently. They they look at them. You know, a lot of them come in from you know from fan fiction, from writing you know their own anime stories and things like that. In fact, and and the, you know, they're not used to thinking about a story. As a story should be thought about, they're used to thinking about, oh, isn't this cool? Or these two characters need to do this, and that's you know that's a valid part of the process. But there are also elements of story construction, elements of character development that are you know just universal. And once you can get them to think about their own whatever they're writing about that way, they can run with it. They don't have you know like an adult would. They don't have years and years of doing it the wrong way. In, that's in the way. Does that does that make sense?
3: It does. What is the wrong way since you mentioned that?
4: I'll I'll give an example. And this, this is not from any of my kids here, here in town. So if if any of you kids are listening, none of you wrote this. (laughs) (laughs) I read a story once about, you know, it it was a young younger writer who had written it and it started with the villain who had black hair and was wearing a black suit with a black cape striding through his black castle to his black throne room where he sat upon his black throne and thought his black thoughts. And I, uh, you know, all I'm picturing in my head is some guy stumbling in the dark and tripping over things and cursing because he can't find his way to his throne. Cause everything is black. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, with, for her, I point my, my hint to her was, okay, I, I understand what you're going for here, but you have to remember that to the villain, He's the hero of the story. And her next draft of this this same scene was phenomenally better. It's taking what they've got, seeing you know, where are you, you know, and I'm and again, I'm I have to use myself as kind of the final arbiter because it's my class, where I think it should go, but not doing it for them, just kind of pointing it out, you know, like maybe this isn't the best thing. You know, maybe your your villain shouldn't. Shouldn't be stumbling over Ottomans in his throne room, you know, black Ottomans, of course.
3: Questionable decorating choices of villains.
4: Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that, that may be an, an entire, pa- you know, panel discussion someday at a convention.
3: What do you have in the works right now? I hear you're working on Wisp of a Thing.
4: Yep, yeah, that's, uh, I'm waiting for the final, uh, no, actually, I'm waiting for the copy edits on that and that will the, the book will be out next year. There will be a fifth Eddie Lacrosse book, which is probably seventy five percent finished. It will be out in the first part of two thousand fourteen. Um, it doesn't have a title finalized yet, so I can't can't tell you what that is. There will be um, I do I do some e short stories available through Story Vault on Amazon um, called The Firefly Witch, and there'll be a new collection of three of those out. Probably in the next couple of weeks, there will be a Christmas special, couple of stories, particularly one involving characters from the Hum and the Shiver that I think everybody will like, and that's pretty much all I can all I can confirm right now. But you know, it's it's like everybody who does this for a living. There's always stuff in the works. There's always you know stuff being researched and, and written and everything. So, but the next the next thing that will be available in bookstores will be Wisp of a Thing, the follow-up to The Hum and the Shiver.
3: Well, we're looking forward to it. Thank you again. Well,
4: glad to do it. Glad to do it. It's been fun talking to you.
0: That was OSU student Anna Schwetz talking to one of the guests of honor at the Context 25 convention in town on September 28th through 30th, Alex Bledsoe. OSU student Samantha Demerle is a fan of Liz for Your Die, as you'll find out.
5: Liz Winstead begins her 2012 essay series, Liz, Free or Die, with a disclaimer chapter, a chapter which states that her book is not a memoir, per se, as she decided to write about some specific moments that will give the reader some insight into the people, places, and experiences that propelled her forward. For someone who claims to be a comedian, I found this introduction to be a bit dull. Where was the funny, the laugh-out-loud hilarious? This introduction seemed too sentimental for the head writer of The Daily Show. But as I began to read... I found that sentimentality and humor are not mutually exclusive and that Liz incorporates these seemingly conflicting ideas into a treasure trove of anecdotes and life lessons. Liz begins her series of essays from her beginning, starting with her dislike of everything infant and progressing to her distrust of the creepy, disembodied praying hands plaque. These stories are sweetly reminiscent, but Liz's true talent is her ability to portray a fresh and funny image, despite the reality of the situation. She describes her apprehension on the creepy praying hands plaque as a 10-year-old's fear of how the Catholic Church punishes sinful children. Chop. Off go your hands. This dark, realistic humor is Liz's forte. She acknowledges this strength much later in life through her political satire, but she obviously developed it at a relatively early age. How else would she be able to laugh at getting knocked up by the age of 17? This woman tells stories really well. Each one is unique, relevant, and engaging. As a reader, I found myself wishing that she'd expand on her experiences, give me more background about her alter ego, Lizilla, explain where her relationship with Joey Grimes went, and discuss her opinion of veterinarians one more time, because it is hilarious. In a way, this book gave me such an intimate glimpse of her life that I found myself bonding with her. I would love to meet this woman. She is brilliant and strong-willed, someone with whom I could talk for hours at a time about everything from politics to philosophy. At one point during my reading, I realized that this intimacy was unintentional. Liz simply portrays her life in such a relatable way that, as Patton Oswalt says, reading Winstead is like hanging out with Winstead. This portrayal was extremely useful to her overall message of her book, which is that women should strive for opportunistic equality in the professional world. Because of the way she writes, this message is not even preachy. It seems to be a natural way to see the world. Through her life story, Liz invites you to see the world as she sees it, to become part of her side. And as a reader, it is an easy decision to follow her example. This book is a wonderful mixture of voice and reason, of heart and humor. Her experiences portray a message that her through life and shapes her personality. Liz, using her dynamic writing style and a series of memorable experiences, delivers an autobiography worth enjoying.
0: This has been Writer's Talk. For more information about any of our guests, visit writerstalk.org. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.